Section forty of Flowers of Free Thought, Second Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in November two thousand twenty. Flowers of Free Thought, Second Series by George William Foote. Section forty. Smirching a Hero he who fights with priests may make up his mind to have his poor good name torn and befouled by the most infamous lies and the most cutting slanders heine the great poet and wit heinrich heine from whom we select a motto for this article was not very partial to englishmen and still less partial to scotchmen he had no objection to their human nature but a strong objection to their religion which so resembles that of the chosen people being indeed chiefly modelled on the old testament pattern that he was led to describe them as modern jews who only differed from the ancient ones in eating pork doubtless a great improvement has taken place since heine penned that pungent description but Scotland is still the home of orthodoxy and most inaccessible to liberal ideas, unless they were a political garb. It need not astonish us, therefore, that a bitter attack on a free-thought martyr like Giordano Bruno should emanate from the land of John Knox, or that it should appear in the distinctly national magazine which is called the Scottish Review. The writer does not disclose his name, and this is a characteristic circumstance. He indulges his malevolence and airs his ignorance under a veil of anonymity. His stabs are delivered like those of a bravo who hides his face as he deals his treacherous blow. Many books and articles have been written on Giordano Bruno, but this writer seems ignorant of them all except the recent volume by a romish priest of the society of jesus which he places at the top of his article and relies upon throughout as an infallible authority it does not occur to him that an account of bruno by a jesuit member of the church which murdered him is hardly likely to be impartial nor does he send anything suspicious in the fact that the documents reporting bruno's trial were all written by the inquisition he would probably sniff at a report of the trial of jesus christ by the scribes and pharisees yet that is precisely the kind of document on which he relies to blast the memory of bruno some of those inquisition records he translates apparently fancying he is making a revelation though they have long been before the scholarly public and were extensively cited in the english life of bruno by i frith which saw the light more than twelve months ago. Bertie reprinted the documents of Bruno's trial in Venice in 1880, so that the startling revelations of Father Previti are at least seven years behind the fair. Before dealing, however, with the use he would make of those documents, we think it best to track this Scotch slanderer throughout his slimy course and expose his astonishing mixture of ignorance, impudence, and meanness let us take two instances of the last virtue first he actually condescends to attempt a feeble point in regard to bruno's name 
bruno he sagely observes with an air of originality only intelligible on the ground that he is conscious of writing for the veriest ignoramuses is the same as brown and hence if we take the baptismal name of filippo bruno it simply means philip brown well what of that what's in a name one great english poet rejoiced in the vulgar name of johnson two other english poets bore the no less vulgar name of thompson while at least two have descended so low as smith we might even remind the orthodox libeller that joshua the jewish form of jesus was as common as jack is among ourselves perhaps the reminder will sound blasphemous in his delicate ears but fact is fact and if reputations are to depend on names we may as well be impartial now for our second instance bruno was betrayed to the venetian inquisition by count mocenigo while he was that nobleman's guest mocenigo had invited him to venice in order that he might learn what this writer calls his peculiar system for developing and strengthening the memory although this peculiar system was simply the lullian method what the nobleman really wanted to learn seems to have been the black art he complained and bruno resolved to leave him whereupon the nobleman who had harboured bruno for months forcibly detained him and denounced him to the inquisition as a heretic and a blasphemer a more dastardly action is difficult to conceive but our scotch libeller is ready to defend it or at least to give it a coat of whitewash he allows that mocenigo does not appear to have been animated with the motive of religious zeal and that his conscience never troubled him before the personal difference but he discovers a plea for this judas in his sworn statement to the inquisition that he did not suspect bruno of being a monk until the very day of their quarrel what miserable sophistry would not a man who violated the most sacred laws of friendship and hospitality be quite capable of telling a lie still more miserable is the remark that bruno was not ultimately tried on mocenigo's denunciations but on his own published writings jesus christ was not tried on the denunciations of judas iscariot but on his own public utterances yet whoever pleaded that this gave a sweeter savour to the traitor's kiss so much though more might be said for the writer's meanness now for his other virtues and especially his ignorance after dwelling on the battle at rome over the proposal to erect a public monument to bruno this writer tells us that a small literature is arising on the subject and that the name of bruno is suddenly invested with an importance which it never formerly possessed apparently he is unaware that so far from a small literature arising a large bruno literature has long existed he has only to turn to the end of frith's book and he will find an alphabetical list of books articles and criticisms on bruno filling no less than ten pages of small type he might also enlighten his ridiculous darkness by reading the fine chapter in lewis's history of philosophy mr swinburne's two noble sonnets and professor tyndall's glowing eulogy of bruno's scientific prescience in the famous belfast address 
perhaps hallam schwegler hegel bunsen and cousin are too recondite for the scotch libeller's perusal but he might at any rate look up lewis swinburne and tyndall who are probably accessible in his local free library what on earth too does he mean by bruno's great obscurity when he returned to italy and fell into the jaws of the inquisition every scholar in that age was more or less obscure for the multitude was illiterate and sovereigns and soldiers monopolized the public attention but as notoriety then went bruno was a famous figure proof of this will be given presently meanwhile we may notice the cheap sneer at bruno as a social and literary failure shelley was a literary failure in his lifetime but he is hardly so now and if bruno was poor and unappreciated time has adjusted the balance for after the lapse of three centuries he is loved and hated by the rival parties of progress and reaction now let us disprove the scotch libeller's statements as to the extreme obscurity in which giordano bruno lived and died bruno was so obscure that he fled from naples and doffed his priest's raiment at the age of twenty-eight or twenty-nine because his superiors were proceeding against him for heresy through an act of accusation which comprised no less than one hundred and thirty counts he was so obscure that the rest of his life was a prolonged flight from persecution he was so obscure that the calvinists hunted him out of geneva whence he narrowly escaped with his life the documents relating to the proceedings against him being still preserved by the genevan archives he was so obscure that he took a professorship at toulouse and publicly lectured there to large audiences for more than a year he was so obscure that king henry the third made him professor extraordinary at paris and excused him from attending mass he was so obscure that the learned doctors of the sorbonne waxed wroth with him and made it obvious that his continued stay in paris would be dangerous to his health he was so obscure that he lived for nearly three years as the guest of the french ambassador in london he was so obscure that he was known at the court of elizabeth he was so obscure that he was a friend of sir philip sidney and an intimate associate of dyer falk greville and the chief wits of his age he was so obscure that he was allowed as a distinguished foreigner to lecture at oxford and to hold a public disputation on the aristotelian philosophy before the chancellor and the university he was so obscure that on his return to paris he held another public disputation under the auspices of the king he was so obscure that his orations were listened to by the senate of the university of wittenberg he was so obscure that he was publicly excommunicated by the zealot Boetius he was so obscure that the venetian inquisition broke through its stern rule and handed him over as a special favour to the inquisition of rome he was so obscure that he was at last butchered to make a roman holiday the cardinals having presided at his trial and his sentence being several pages at length such was the obscurity in which giordano bruno lived and died 
the scotch libeller hints that bruno was not burnt after all he forgets or he is ignorant of the fact that all doubt on that point is removed by the three papers discovered in the vatican library he merely repeats the insinuation of m which has lost its extremely small measure of plausibility since the discovery of those documents the martyrdom of bruno is much better attested than the crucifixion there always was contemporary evidence as well as unbroken tradition and now we have proofs as complete as can be adduced for any event in history from the documentary evidence it is clear that bruno fought hard for his life and he would have been a fool or a suicide to have acted otherwise he bent all his dialectical skill and all his subtle intellect to the task of proving that religion and philosophy were distinct and that so long as a scholar conformed in practice he should be allowed the fullest liberty of speculation the inquisition however pretends that he abjured all his errors and the scotch libeller is pleased to say he recanted but in that case why was bruno burnt alive at the stake according to the laws of the inquisition all who reconciled themselves to the church after sentence were strangled before they were burnt and why was bruno allowed a week's grace before his execution except to give him the opportunity of recanting despite all this jesuitical special pleading the fact remains that bruno was sentenced and burned as an incorrigible heretic and the fact also remains that when the crucifix was held up for him to kiss as he stood amidst the flames he rejected it as scopius wrote with a terrible menacing countenance not only did he hurl scorn at his judges telling them that they passed his sentence with more fear than he heard it but his last words were that he died a martyr and willingly diceva che moriva martire e volontieri bruno is further charged by the scotch libeller with servility an accusation about as plausible as that jesus christ was a highwayman a passage is cited from bruno's high-flown panegyric on henry the third as a specimen of the language he was prepared to employ towards the great when there was anything to be got from them either this writer is ineffably ignorant or his impudence is astounding in the first place that was an age of high-flown dedications look at bacon's fulsome dedication of his advancement of learning to james i nay look at the dedication of our english bible to the same monarch who is put very little below god almighty and compared to the sun for strength and glory in the next place bruno's praise of henry the third was far from mercenary he never at any time had more than bread to eat he was grateful to the king for protection and his gratitude never abated when henry was in ill repute bruno still praised him and these panegyrics were put into one of the counts against the heretic when he was arraigned at venice the last libel is extorted from bruno's comedy il candelaio the scotch puritan actually sends something obscene in the very title to which we can only reply by parodying carlyle the nose smells what it brings as for the comedy itself it must be judged by the standard of its age books were then all written for men and reticence was unknown 
yet free as il candelayo is sometimes in its portrayal of contemporary manners it does not approach scores of works which are found in every gentleman's library it certainly is not freer than shakespeare it is less free than the song of solomon it is infinitely less free than ezekiel nor was the comedy the work of bruno's maturity it was written in his youth while he was a priest before he fell under grave suspicion of heresy and we may be sure it was relished by his brother priests in the dominican monastery to draw from this youthful jeu d'esprit a theory of bruno's attitude towards women is a grotesque absurdity we have his fine sonnets written in england especially the one inscribed to the most virtuous and delightful ladies in which he celebrates the beauty sweetness and chastity of our english spouses and daughters of angelic birth still more striking is the eulogy in his canticle of the shining ones bruno like every poet was susceptible to love but he was doomed to wonder and the affection of wife and babes was not for him so he made philosophy his mistress and his devotion led him to the stake surely there was a prescience of his fate in the fine apostrophe of his heroic rapture o worthy love of the beautiful o desire for the divine lend me thy wings bring me to the dayspring to the clearness of the young morning and the outrage of the rabble the storms of time the slings and arrows of fortune shall fall upon this tender body and shall weld it to steel End of section 40